The Tom Woods Show, episode 1624. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're like me, one of the most demoralizing things is when someone utters the truth and then lamely apologizes. Well, not these folks. I've got a free ebook of stories from heroic professors who told the PC mob to go pound sand. Stories from Jordan Peterson, Michael Rechtenwald, and others. Check it out at againstthemob.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. All right, so as I said, we're going to be doing some non-virus episodes here because we have to live our lives on some level. A lot of you are stuck home and you do not want to listen to information about the virus all day long. You can get that in all kinds of different places. I want to carry on with life to some extent. So today's episode has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Instead, we're going to be talking about a major chunk of Latin American history with Dr. Deidre Berzer, who's a lecturer in history at Hillsdale College and who's just produced the first of what will be a couple of courses for us at libertyclassroom.com on Latin American history. And as I've told you, and no doubt you did not need me to tell you this, it's very hard to get good sound information on Latin American history because it's taught overwhelmingly by people with left-wing sympathies. I mean, so overwhelmingly, I mean, more than any field of history I'm aware of. So this is a particular treat. So of course, uh, check out libertyclassroom.com where you can get this and every other course we've ever created and you will enjoy it very much. Uh, Deidre, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's great to be here. All right, we're gonna talk about some themes raised in your course. And I wanna say, first of all, knowing that you're working on a, a second installment of this course, that this is an area where it's very hard to find people you really feel like you can trust in terms of historians. U.S. history is its own minefield, but that's a walk <laughs> in the park compared to yeah. Latin America. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so what's the, first of all, before we get into, I guess I'm getting into a more modern problem with this, but what exactly is the problem there? Why is it that this particular field would be so much worse, where there'd be so heavy, either a Marxist or very heavily social democratic presence where, yeah, I find that in other areas of the world, but not quite so pronounced. I blame Fidel Castro. <laughs> I just think, I think that the attraction of various communist and socialist regimes in Latin America since 1959 has drawn a certain segment of scholarship um, that, that's leaning in that direction to begin with and that wants to um, push that story and make it um, grander and bigger than it is in order to fulfill that kind of progressive vision of history, right? That we keep going ever better. And if we just can get Marxist thought right and look at all of these examples in Latin America, then we will finally truly reach utopia. And I think that has been attractive to a, a self-selective group of scholars. And so they've just run with it. And, and um, yeah, because no one else has really put themselves into that field at the same rate. So not to denigrate all Latin American scholarship, but certainly the Marxists have had a kind of a field day with doing their research in Latin America. Yeah, yeah, which is why I jumped at the opportunity to have you prepare this course and the follow-up one for us. For Thank this, you. this very reason, it's, you just can't find anything quite like this. Right. So we're starting in this course kind of at the beginning of the European interaction 
the, the European encounter with this part of the world. So let's start there because in a way, I don't mean to, I don't want to sound like I'm trivializing it, but in a sense, it is a culture shock of the first order. Absolutely. When, when these two peoples encounter each other. Yes, absolutely. And I do go back in the course and look at the ancient, we call them pre-Columbian civilizations in um, in Latin America. And I also look at Spain or the Iberian Peninsula um, before that Colombian encounter as well. So we can see the backgrounds of both groups as they come together in this encounter. And that thought of encounter is actually something that's rather new that comes out of the 1992 500th anniversary of Columbus running into an island that he named Hispaniola or Española, depends on, on your what you're looking at, <laughs> which map says what. Um, when that kind of discovery and the discovery of the, of the Americas really started being looked at more in terms of encounter, which gives more of a, a credence to a thought of both groups bringing together something new when they encounter each other for the first time, rather than discovery. Discovery seems kind of one-sided to some extent. So I bring those backgrounds together in the course at the beginning. And the civilizations that Columbus and then the conquistadors and explorers who followed him, the, the civilizations they encountered were amazing. They had never seen anything like it. They couldn't believe it. When Cortez and his men first saw Mexico City, they had never seen something as urban and as populated and as amazing before. They were blown away. What wound up happening as a result of this was uh, quite a bit of, let's say, soul searching. Now I'm getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because because here we get into the question of how the natives were treated by, for example, the Spanish. And what I want to talk about with regard to that at the moment, is some of the reflection that, let's say, the uh, a lot of the Dominicans, for instance, uh, at uh, the University of Salamanca went through as they as they contemplated this. Uh, what is the nature of these peoples? Uh, it turns out that they are fundamentally the same as we are. And what does that mean? What does that imply for how we're to treat them? Well, there's there's we know of only one code governing how human beings should interact. And it's the one we ourselves live by. So therefore it's one we should apply there. Now that seems like a commonplace to us today. Well, of course there's one one rule that governs all peoples everywhere in the world. I and mean, there's nothing particularly insightful about that, but that's extraordinarily insightful because it, it, you would find it very difficult looking around the world to find very many peoples engaging in soul searching about their own behavior instead of just thinking of themselves as right and the other people as wrong I don't think you even find that among the pre-Columbian civilizations. I don't think they say, well, I don't know. I mean, should we really be engaging in these practices involving sacrifice? We don't see anything like that. So this is a step forward for all mankind. I think so. It's very self-reflective, right? So suddenly you have all of these people that you don't know if they're people, right? Are they people like we are? And it lends itself to a lot of self-examination in terms of theology and literature. And uh, we see Shakespeare reacts to this in um, The Tempest and uh, has the character of Miranda saying something like, oh, brave new world with such people in it. And she's really voicing that from both directions, right? <laughs> that such people in it can be 
referring to the Europeans or referring to the inhabitants of what we eventually call Latin America. And just this kind of um, reflective moment. Yeah. Okay. If these are humans, then their souls are like our souls and their souls deserve to be told the gospel and they deserve to be saved. Right. And so this understanding of common humanity fuels the religious sentiment of the Spaniards and of the Portuguese. And they are very, very deeply religious people. Um, And it also reflects with Queen Isabel, who I think unfortunately died in 1504 or thereabouts, might be 1502. (laughs) And she had been really had to think about this as indigenous peoples were brought to her in the various voyages that Columbus made and had to think about how should we go about evangelizing to these people, but also creating some kind of a colonial um, mercantilist beneficial economic situation. And so we have that going on at the same time that we have this absolute demographic disaster because Of course, the Iberians didn't understand germ theory. No one did, right? So they didn't know that all of these people didn't carry the same kind of genetic antibodies to the diseases that had ravished Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so the islanders in uh, the Gulf of Mexico immediately got sick. But also the Spaniards got sick. The second voyage of Columbus brought swine flu. They didn't know they had swine flu on board, but it it devastated um, all of the communities, both Spanish and um, indigenous. And then part of the more modern debate about what happened in, in Latin America and the black legend that comes out almost immediately and is still very much rampant is and how much did the Europeans or the Spanish in this case, really want this kind of demographic disaster to happen where upwards of 20 million, maybe 25 million, maybe more than that, indigenous peoples die within 50 years of their encounter with the Spanish. And I've always believed, this is from my graduate school training, but I think it's really true that the Spanish saw wealth in terms of laborers, right? And also gold. <laughs> they knew that that eventually they would run out of gold to find. Um, but labor, and they didn't want to do the labor themselves. They were managers. They were not the people that do the actual agricultural work, the actual mining. They wanted workers and they saw wealth in terms of workers. So why would they want to intentionally kill off all of those workers? They wouldn't. <laughs> they wouldn't. And they were rewarded for their conquests and their exploration with not just grants of land, but grants of the people who lived on that land and the labor of that people. So there's no reason to think that they did any of this disease mongering and intentionally handing out uh, blankets that were filled with smallpox or anything like that. They had just no concept of germ theory whatsoever. So there's that, that whole black legend of the cruelty of the Spaniards. And certainly we can see them working out, you know, okay, yes, these are humans. um, But if they're not going to willingly let us evangelize them and they're going to attack us and they're going to continue being cannibals, um, dealing in human sacrifice, which the Aztecs did to a degree unbelievable to all, even today, um, then we can employ 
Augustine and Aquinas' just war theory, and we can enslave them. Those, those who did not follow our religious opportunities, right? And so it's kind of a fine line that they walk with some of that, and they get called on it, um, most famously by the Dominican um, Bartolomé de las Casas, who went back and forth between the New World and Spain, often trying to bring attention to some of the cruel things that were happening. And actually, um, he got this series of laws called the New Laws of 1542 passed, um, in which all of the most cruel measures were uh, outlawed. And the people in Peru specifically, to whom those laws were meant, (laughs) they rebelled and revolted. And so the Spanish government had to walk back those laws a little bit. But the, the Black legend of Spanish cruelty emerged pretty quickly, and it was really a tool in the um, Catholic-Protestant wars going on, and really a, a, a very strong tool in the media toolbox that the um, Queen Elizabeth the first certainly made good use out of. Um, so yeah, that part is still discussed vehemently today. So we can imagine at the time, you know, even more so, <laughs> just trying to, to figure out who these people were, how they should be treated, but also how to make an economic go of the whole situation. Well, I I hear the the point about the black legend, and there there's some speculation as to how it got started, and 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 you know was it an attempt? Was there an attempt by other countries that were also involved in exploring the new world to portray the Spanish as uniquely wicked? You know, unlike us, we we have pure motives. The Spanish were 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 terrible and cruel, mm-hmm. but but surely it's not entirely a legend, or there wouldn't have been a Bartolome de las Casas to criticize what was happening. And is it not the case that that Columbus himself, uh, you know, for nobody, no reasonable person takes away from him that obviously, just even to undertake what he did, took a, a, a tremendous amount of determination and courage. There's no question about that. Right. But 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 surely there was some cruelty, even even at his own hand. That, that has to be acknowledged. Right. And he immediately enslaved Indians and took them back to Spain, kind of showing them off, like, look what's, look what's there. Right? And then Queen Isabel was not particularly pleased with that. And so almost right away, we have this discussion, you know, what, what is just here and what, what is right and just? Um, yeah, Columbus is a really interesting figure, Um certainly brave and certainly um, tenacious, but he had no idea really to the expanse of the new world that he'd encountered. He didn't explore beyond that first island and he could see the devastation happening through disease, but also we have accounts of massive attacks on various villages combined with the disease factor and then so many people suffering from disease that no one was able to go into the fields and to to grow crops. And so then people were starving because there was nothing to eat. So yeah, there's this huge chain of events that point back to Columbus. And yeah, it's a really interesting historical dilemma to kind of think about what responsibilities to lay, not just at his feet, but it also of all of the um, conquistadors to follow. And they certainly, we kind of shorthand the goal of those explorers is saying, 
God, gold, and glory, right? That that's what they were after and not necessarily in that order. And sometimes, you know, a lot of what we look at is how much of the God part was just kind of a justification for gaining control of the indigenous and were they really converting and those kinds of questions. And we spend a lot of time looking at the original documents, which are around to kind of think about that. But one of my favorite early documents is of the first Portuguese ship to encounter Brazil. And the uh, there's a great, a very detailed accounts of that. And the people, there's, there's not this immediate, um, oh, let's shoot all the people on the shore. It's more of a, oh, this is an encounter, right? It makes me think of, of kind of like the Star Trek first contact kind of stuff, you know, where where the the people on board, the, the uh, Portuguese ship and the Indians on the shore kind of talk to each other in ways, of course, they don't speak the same language, but they make, uh, make it known that they want to kind of trade people and explore. And it takes a while for the indigenous people to feel trust that they trust enough to go on to the the ships um and then they're very interested in um in mass they watch um mass taking place every day and they're given a lot of crucifixes and crosses and all kinds of things but there's definitely this this kind of exchange of cultural knowledge and information as best they can despite the the communication barrier and that says to me that um some of this encounter, at least, was with really pure hearts, to use your language earlier, you know, that people were just um, overwhelmingly interested in one another. And so I think we have both sides. And maybe that's just a little tiny bit of the experience, but yet it's there. And so, yeah, there is that sense. And Las Casas, um, some of his contemporaries thought he was exaggerating because they, and there's been subsequent studies of the numbers, right? And and it's really a numbers game. And, you know, how many, were there really that many people in place that could have been treated in the way that Las Casas says, and that those numbers really don't play out, but the need for exaggeration was probably there in order to get people to react in the way that Las Casas wanted them to react. And so I think for him, his heart was definitely in the right place. He was very much, and he came from a a position of being an encomendero, one of the people who was granted this labor and really the care of the Indians who were on that land. And um, so he had had that experience coming out of, of being a conqueror and being rewarded for that and watching cruelty happen. So he was not making that up, but as historians, we, we have to kind of be careful not to uh, <laughs> not to, to lean too far in one direction, but try to kind of see the entire picture and try to put ourselves in, in trying to understand what people were doing intentionally and not intentionally at the time. Let's go back and, and review just the bird's eye overview of your course. Just tell me what's the time frame that's covered there so everybody knows. All right. Well, ostensibly 1492, up until the independence movements that really get underway around 1810. But I do go back and look at the earliest pre-Columbian civilizations, the Olmecs. Okay. Those kinds of things. So that's All right, so there's a lot of material covered. <laughs> so so let's so I want to just try to hit on a little bit of each period. So 
I'd like to know about the colonial societies okay. that emerge from the, you know, from the European um, intervention and administration there. Well, what are these societies like? Uh, and is there, I don't know, what can we learn from them, let's say? So in putting together these societies, the Spanish and the Portuguese built on what they knew, which is what they had done in almost 700 years of reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula from the Muslims. And so they had kind of a system in place of how you do this. So you build on top of what's there before in terms of social structures and in terms of religious buildings, right? So we call it sanctifying the pagan, basically, right? Baptizing these indigenous religious structures by knocking them down and then building right on top of them a cathedral. So the best example of that is in Mexico City, um, which was for the Aztecs, their capital, Tenochtitlan, and um, the Spaniards almost immediately knocked down the Templo Mayor, which was the place where all of their, their high religious holidays and all of their many human sacrifices took place. And so then they built right on top of that with the with the bricks from that, the uh, cathedral. And so that happens all across Latin America. Um, so also taking those social structures of tribute and um, taxation and things like that, and just really bringing them wholesale into the Spanish purview. But of course, this is a colonial setup, right? So it exists for the enrichment of the mother country. And so there has to be sent to Spain. They call it the Royal Fifth. So 20% of everything was supposed to go to Spain. And the, the people who immigrated to the New World, some of them were looking to come and just make their wealth and then go back to Spain. So they left their families behind. Um, and some of them were looking to start over and maybe brought their families with them eventually. Um, in the process of all of this, we have a, a totally new group of people coming about the mestizo people the the mixture of the indigenous people with the iberians and that happens pretty quickly with cortez himself um, and his partner with whom he wouldn't have been able to achieve any of the things that he did with conquering the aztecs um who became known as La Malinche, but she's also Doña Marina. She became uh, got baptized pretty early on. And uh, she had been sold into slavery by her family. And so she knew a couple of different indigenous languages. And then the Cortez ran into um, a priest who had shipwrecked off of Jamaica and then had been traded around a little bit. And it was on the Yucatan. And so between those two, he was able to communicate with all the different tribes and the Aztecs. They were, they were these translators for him. But La Malinche is the mother of the mestizo, right? She is as the, the mixed race kind of stuff. So the, actually all the um, in Mexico, Columbus Day, October 12th, is the Dia de la Raza, the day of the mixing of the races. Right. And so I think that's just a profound element as society gets underway in Latin America. And then we see it flowering um, fairly early on. And the, the Iberians are urban people. And there were these urban centers already in place because of, of the civilizations that were in place before Columbus came along. And so they build on those urban centers before they 
um, branch out, but they also have to find not, it's not too hard <laughs> to find where all the, the mountains of silver and the gold mines are because the Indians had all of that figured out already. So that happens. Um, the building of churches happens very quickly. All um, missionaries come in. Um, they take very seriously the idea that they are, are um, evangelizing all of these souls and bringing these souls into um, eternity. And so we get lots and lots of missionaries all across Latin America and building schools and churches and figuring out languages and translating um, the Gospels and the entire Bible into these languages. All kinds of interesting things happening with that. So we have, I would say by the 17th century, we have a really strong social life in Latin America. Mixed people everywhere. Um, one of the main tensions that comes across is and this is maintained by the crown, is to keep the highest positions in society and in religion reserved for Spaniards coming from Spain and not for the people who have settled down and built families and placed their roots in Latin America. So we call them Creoles, Criollos, and the peninsulars, peninsulares. And this is a tension that really doesn't get worked out until the independence movement of uh, the early 19th century. Yes, so beautiful flowering of culture, and we see lots of, of intellectuals and literature and art and all of these things, beautiful architecture, so we can trace the development of culture through looking at all of those things. I want to ask you one more thing, and again, this is meant just to give people a a taste of of your course. Right. If they, if they want more, which they darn well should. They should go <laughs> to libertyclassroom.com and and consume your most recent course. But the um, expression you used in an email to me about Latin America as a laboratory of liberty. Yes. Can you explain that, elaborate on that? Absolutely. So that's my theme in the course. And uh, I, I try to talk about that and you know as a lab a lab things can go in a number of different directions right in a lab and you're testing things out and that's what I see happening in colonial Latin America that things could have gone in a number of different ways right so we see a lot of fluidity in colonial Latin America also we have we have order in the middle of that fluidity and we have abuse amidst accountability and we have greed amidst noble intentions but we can see people really pushing their understanding of their rights and um, that they understand that to be internal, right? That th this understanding of natural law kind of gets brought in really well, I think, through the offices of all of the the missionaries, right? So we can see with the indigenous peoples this is a great example that um, when they feel like that they're being trodden upon, they go through the legal channels and there are places for that. There are ways for that to happen. And the uh, Iberian society is very legalistic and they did everything in triplicate, which is why we have such a depth of artifacts, let's say, all these documents, this document trail, because they did everything in triplicate. So if if a document was destroyed in one place, it probably exists 
in another. Um, so we can follow, for example, when we get to kind of around 1750, there's this fight over who is going to succeed to the Spanish crown. And it plays itself out in a variety of wars. And we just call those the wars of Spanish succession. And the Habsburgs don't have any anyone coming up. You know, they're, they're kind of at the end of their line. And so there's this war and it works out in favor of the Bourbons. And so the Bourbons accede to the crown and then they have to pay for all these wars. And so they impose all of these manner of new taxes on all of the colonial subjects, including Indians who were not supposed to be taxed, but they had certain tribute um, quotas that they had to meet. And they could not possibly pay for all of these new taxes that were imposed on them. And so they went through legal channels. And this is just one example right, of all these legal channels, but they went through every legal channel they could find and were went unanswered. And so they erupted into violence and just basically said, we're not going to pay these anymore. And those uprisings, those were in um, Peru. And in modern day Bolivia, um, they're called the Tupac Amaru the second uprising and that was followed by a bunch of other ones but that's kind of the beginning of this movement toward independence and so that's how I like to talk about liberty that is as a laboratory here it's not that it always ends up at a place that we would say oh wow they've got more independence here than they did here but at least that people seem to understand what their rights were and what they could do to protect them. And we can see that happening in a lot of different places. So I try to follow that thread in every episode. In some places in Latin American history, it's less less evident. But even when I talk about slavery, both African slavery and Indian slavery, um, the slaves from the time of the Siete Partidas from the 13th century in Spain knew their rights. So they could sue if their owners were um, overly abusive, and they can sue to be switched to a kinder, gentler um, owner. So, and they did, right? We see have a paper trail of all of that happening. They could um, buy their freedom over time. So there are a lot of different ways that um, individuals exercise liberty. And I love to look at that individual level in history, I mean, the overall patterns, but also how individuals lived in those time periods. And I think if we can see the exercise of liberty among individuals in the middle of a lot of really awful abuses, that gives us a sense of the, the triumph of the human character over time. And it gives us that kind of understanding, like we we're talking about a little bit ago, of common humanity. And that's really the overall story that I like to tell. Well, it's a very, very interesting story. And I would like people to Check it out over at libertyclassroom.com. And of course, as always, we have coupon codes for you so you can get a little discount because you listen to the show and you know the secret page where the codes are located. That's libertyclassroom.com slash coupons. Well, looking forward to the next installment, but let's first get everybody over there to, to uh, consume what you've done already. Your Laura Ingalls Wilder course has proven to be very, very popular indeed. And in fact, I was playing a trivia game because we're all stuck in our homes this time of year, right. uh, at this, this time <laughs> of our lives. And so, and for anybody listening to this long in the future, this is deep into the coronavirus problem. 
And so we're stuck in our homes and we can't visit people. And I love to travel and I can't travel. Or I could travel, but there's nothing to do when I get there. So there's <laughs> right. no point. So we've been playing games remotely with friends across the country. One of them was a, a trivia game and, and had to do with the first book Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote. And doggone it, I did not know the answer. And I thought <laughs> if I had paid more attention to Deidre... <laughs> I, would have, <laughs> I know, I know, I know it. I know it now. <laughs> anyway, well, listen, thanks for your work on the course and for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for today. If you like and appreciate what I'm doing, please do consider becoming a supporting listener of The Tom Woods Show. Helps make this show possible. But not only that, the benefits you get are so ridiculously copious and abundant you will almost be embarrassed at how many things I am bestowing upon you. So check it out at supportinglisteners.com and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.